You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoy Monster Talk, please consider supporting us on Patreon or giving us a positive review on iTunes or your preferred podcast aggregator. Thank you. If you haven't heard of Jack Parsons outside of Monster Talk, you likely will soon. We've been laying the groundwork for this episode for several months, trying to provide a context to the rise of Western esotericism and occult magic in Europe. We've talked about witches, secret societies, theosophy, and the rise of Aleister Crowley's Church of Thelema. In the early part of the 20th century in Los Angeles, a young science fiction fan and rocket enthusiast spots a book by Crowley at a friend's house, and it changes his life forever. How he went from sci-fi fan to rocket scientist to magical occultist to the tragic victim of an experiment gone wrong, well, like the science fiction magazines he loved so much, it's an amazing story. actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. We're continuing our intermittent series on the history of magic to cover one of the strangest figures in rocket science and occult history. To talk about it, we welcome back Jerry Drake, who last joined us to talk about grimoires. Jerry does a great job of quickly summarizing the astonishing life of Jack Parsons. If you want to dig deeper, you can seek out the two biographies we talk about in this episode, Strange Angel, which is about to be turned into a CBS series, and Sex and Rockets, which looks closely at the magical life of this interesting figure. The story has sex, magic, science, betrayal, intrigue, spies, murder, theft, and much more. That it has taken this long to have it turned into a TV show surprises me. We sort of rushed into the magical side of things during this interview, but Parson and his friends were true pioneers in the field of rocketry. Just before World War II, they had been working to try and build solid-fuel rockets capable of high-altitude instrument drops. When the war came along, they were in the best position to potentially invent the much-needed JATO device, a rocket-assisted launch device that was crucial for getting planes off the ground on short runways or aircraft carrier decks, and which could also be used as a sort of turbo-boost escape device for getting away from enemy fighters. 
The problem was that the rockets had a tendency to blow up when they were more than a day or two old, and they were so dangerous that the people testing them became known as the Suicide Squad. The story goes that one day Parsons saw some roofers mixing pitch for a roofing job and got the idea to make a similar mix for the rockets. By mixing the fuel with a heated pitch, the solid fuel would cool evenly and not crack, which was the breakthrough needed to get the J-2 contract and to make the devices safe for military use. But Parsons wasn't just a rocket scientist. He was also interested in unleashing his magical potential through Thelema and through his work with Aleister Crowley's American Agape Lodge. Parsons became the leader of a very strange crew of misfits and cultists. This group included a red-headed raconteur and sci-fi writer named L. Ron Hubbard, who would later go on to found Scientology, but not before allegedly robbing Parsons and stealing his girlfriend. Now, it's quite a story, so I'll stop teasing it, so let's just join Karen and Jerry for some monster talk. So first of all, welcome back, Jerry. Thanks for coming to talk mm-hmm. to us again. Sure, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So as, since you're not just a, a contributor and all-around awesome person, and also you listen to the show, you know we've been doing a series on the the history of magic and how it sort of interacts with these sort of fringe topics. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, I, I think there's probably no more singular nexus point for all this overlap than than in the person of Jack Parsons. Um but I, I didn't feel qualified talking about him myself because of my limited amount of reading. Uh, there's two biographies out on him, at least. And right. One's called Strange Angel, and the other is Sex and Rockets. And I read an interesting review <laughs> that describes Sex and Rockets as a story of an occultist who happens to be a rocket scientist, and the book Strange Angel as the story of a rocket scientist who happens to be an occultist. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, it's full in the interpretation. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've read both of them. Um, twice now um and you know strange angel is getting adapted into kind of a fictiony looking tv show for cbs online i i actually think sex and rockets though is the better book because i i actually think parsons was an occultist who dabbled in rocket science i mean i i think that's the correct interpretation of, of his life okay i, I think it I, that's the way it comes across absolutely certainly and of course the author here spends a lot of time in the book talking about the specifics of the rituals he performs. But we, we've sure. done all this background work. Uh, let's, um, let's start out by giving a quick biographical sketch of Parsons and his life. And you can go all the way to the end if you want to, and then we'll just sort of... De- I was kind of thinking about how to go over his life because, you know, he only lived to be 37 years old. You know, Parsons is born on the 2nd October 1914, and he dies under some interesting circumstances, June 17th, 1952, he was 37. And uh, he lived his whole life, like within a few square miles of the place where he was born in Los Angeles. Uh, Primarily, he lives on a road close to where he was born that they sort of called Millionaire's Road. It was Orange Grove Avenue, um, where he buys a mansion later on that people call the Parsonage. Obviously, you know, Blake, you like Jack because he, he loved to pun, right? He did, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then he ends up selling that place to some developers and living in a carriage house behind it. And then, you know, living in a couple of other flops around there uh, right up until he dies when he, you know, sort of blows himself up in his, in his, in his laundry room slash laboratory. But Parsons is an, an interesting guy. He's actually born Marvel Whiteside Parsons is the name he's born with. And 
from what I can tell, that's a weird damn name by the uh, standards of the time. I mean, people had weird names in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, he's named after his dad, Marvel Parsons, who we don't know a lot about, who either had a fairly minor military career or a fairly elaborate and, and exciting military career. I, I think the real person I would like to take a peek into is Marvel Parsons, the father, because either he was a, a do-nothing in the military or he was sort of a massive hero that in some ways eclipsed his son, but we don't know that much about him. And he died here in Washington, D.C., literally about a quarter mile from where I'm sitting. Like, I walked by the place where he died um, when my wife and I take our regular walks. I haven't tracked down his grave yet, but that's one of the things I want to do. And, you know, Jack was, he had a wealthy mother uh, whose parents moved her out to California. Um, and he was codgled and spoiled as a kid. The father cheated on on the mother and she spent sort of the rest of her days sort of fawning over her boy and then sewing a, a rift between Jack or John Parsons and, and his dad, Marvel, who he never had a relationship with. And in fact, Jack Parsons, when he writes, he always writes in the third person, which is really weird. He he writes about himself and he uses the, you know, the descriptor you. And he has this long thing where he talks about having a sort of a... a Oedipian complex for his mother and slaying his father and all this stuff. So even he is aware of the complex psychology of, of his relationship with his father. And he develops a, an interest in rocketry really early as a kid, basically by making explosives out in his backyard. And he falls in love with sci-fi. And I mean, growing up in 1914, he's living in sort of the golden age of, of science fiction, you know, and pulps and all, all that stuff. And, and, pretty early on from what we can tell becomes obsessed with the idea of space travel and using rockets to, to break the, the barrier, um, the earth space barrier. And he begins to experiment with rockets really early on. He goes to community college. Uh, you know, then he ends up down at the university there. Um, when he's 18 years old, he marries the old daughter, of, uh, uh, a woman named Helen Northrup of a, of a fairly prominent local business guy who, again, was sort of an abusive dad. So there's some weird stuff going on there. Um, eventually ha has an affair with her younger sister while she's still underage. Um, she acts up with her for a little while. And during this whole time period, he's working with the Guggenheim Rocket Group uh, out there at the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory, which they called Gausset back in those days, to develop a, a rocket program. Now, this is before the Second World War, and this is at a time when people didn't really believe rocketry was a valid science. I know it's hard for us to imagine that when we think about the fact that, you know, all of us here grew up in the shadow of the moon landing. I mean, I was born the year of the last moon landing and sort of grew up in that. But there was a time when people thought rocketry was was preposterous. So, oh, just, yeah, you know, Parsons, my understanding is yeah. that the uh, when he gets involved with JATO, Mm -hmm. They call it jet assist instead of rocket assist, precisely yeah. because there's a uh, sort of a, a public relations issue. People think of rockets as sci-fi. Exactly. That's exactly right. In fact, a jet propulsion laboratory, uh, which Parsons was one of the founding fathers of, picks the name jet because people didn't think rocketry made any sense. I got to tell you, that's the one I have the hardest time wrapping my head around because, you know, George Washington had a rocket corps during the American Revolution. Like, we used rockets for stuff in combat. Combat. So the idea, and again, all the all the research seems to indicate that people just associated with rocketry 
with this ridiculous concept of, of, of space travel, which nobody took seriously at the time. So, you know, Parsons is, he never gets his degree. Um, he falls in with these guys at the Guggenheim Institute out there. I mean, long story short, he just sort of falls into a cadre of people who are all doing really cutting edge work on rocketry. Robert Goddard is out at New Mexico at that time. They sort of pack up the truck and go out there and visit with him. And he's super secret about his research. So they're not able to build a relationship between their team and, and Goddard. And within the space of a couple of years, they go from sort of making these home-built rockets to building what we now is the JATO rocket, which JATO stands for Jet Assisted Takeoff, which is really, um, you know, rock, rocket-assisted takeoff. And the idea was is that you could use a rocket to do one of two things, get a plane off the ground, off the deck of a ship, or off of a really narrow runway, a short runway, or use the JATO to blast your way out of a dogfight by hitting a bunch of speed uh, while you're in the sky. And once they actually perfected that rocket and started putting it on planes, um, people started to take Parsons and his group really, really seriously. And to Parsons, you know, great loss, he, I mean, you know, they always call us, you know, one of the big critiques of academia is that we're a bunch of snobs and all that stuff. But this was a point where Parsons' inability to develop a, a, a basis in academic rigor cost him a career. Like, he didn't keep good notes. He had bench notes. He was sloppy with his experimentation. He mixed explosives up in coffee cans. And he, you know, ostensibly is forced out of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory because he's a sloppy scientist. I mean, that's what it says in his in his file, in his FBI file. Not because he was involved with black magic, although that's what Parsons blames, you know, his persecution on. But, you know, it, it appears that he just is never able to make that leap from sort of cowboy genius to, you know, serious um, scientist. And then people who have the rigor and the math skills to go on and 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 upscale his inventions sort of sort of take it from there. Um, um, during this whole t- time period, while he's working on rockets, he's working at a gunpowder factory, a explosive factory. He's everywhere in L.A. Like he's testifying in court. Uh, he ends up helping break up a ring of corrupt cops who blow a guy up. Parsons is able to rebuild the explosive device, the car bomb that was used, and demonstrate that you know it could be used to to blow up a car. He's hanging out. You know, with people like, you know, some um, Heinlein's widow denied it, but apparently he had a relationship with Heinlein. Um, he's hanging out with anybody and everybody in L.A. that, that wants a good party. Uh, and he falls in with um, a group of Cal- Crowleyites out there, Crowleyites out in L.A., uh, who established a, a church of Thelema out there. And don't forget, at this time, uh, Aleister Crowley is still alive. And he enters into a correspondence with Jack Parsons, and he thinks he's this awesome, you know, super magical guy who's really got a lot of energy, and he sort of nurses a relationship with him. And, of course, you know, Crowley in the back of his head is broke and strung out and having lung problems, so he's, you know, also seeing this as an opportunity to get some of that sweet Hollywood money. Um, So they develop this relationship, and they establish the Agape Lodge of the OTO, essentially in in Parsons' house, his, his mansion, which... He has subsequently sub subsided and, and and put in apartments. So you know this is a guy who goes down to the the uni, does his research, builds his rockets, and then at night he's doing thelemite research and, and engaging in these sort of of sex rituals and having trysts with all these women. 
Um, and things are going great guns until one day uh, freaking L. Ron Hubbard shows up. <laughs> I mean, it's just the craziest story. You know, Ron Hubbard has sort of been cashiered out of the Navy. The war is over. He's a young science fiction writer. And in the middle of all this insanity, you know, the founder of, of Scientology just rolls up needing a flop. And, of course, he finds Parsons' house. And Parsons just becomes incredibly infatuated with a the guy. They begin to, you know, really, some people have argued they've, they had a gay relationship. You know, the FBI seems to have thought so. They had a, they had a good time together. Uh, Hubbard sort of became his understudy. Um, Crowley was apparently impressed with the guy as well. And in the middle of all of it, they pull off this thing that uh, Parsons called the Babylon working. Now, that's B-A-B-A-L-O-N, not uh, the other spelling. Babylon is supposed to be this sort of ancient goddess that's, you know, cooked up in Thelemite mythology. And they spent a whole bunch of nights engaging in sort of sex magic and, you know, what we might call, you know, tantric magic as, as, as Parsons does this Babylon ritual to summon this... Uh, uh, this goddess, this scarlet woman to earth. One night after they do their performance out in the desert, they go back to the parsonage and sure enough, here's this gorgeous, striking, redheaded woman, Marjorie Cameron, hanging out there and Parsons goes, aha, it, it works. I've summoned my scarlet woman and he falls passionately in love with it. Trist happens, you know, Parsons' wife's out of the picture, his girlfriend, the younger sister, who he calls Betty Northrup, Runs off with L. Ron Hubbard. They take Parsons, uh, something like $20,000 of his money, go to Florida to buy boats. Lawsuit happens. Bada bing. You know, Parsons sues them, gets 2500 bucks of his money back. L. Ron Hubbard and Betty Northrup get married, sail off into the future of Dianetics and Scientology, and they're divorced. Parsons returns to... LA, he, he's lost his fortune, he sells his house, he moves into the carriage house, he falls in with Marjorie Cameron, who's quite a talented artist and occultist in her own right. Um, he's doing business with Israel and gets investigated by the FBI. Uh, Parsons had Marx, Marxist ties as a young man. Uh, the uh, HUAC and the government get involved. He loses a security clearance as a result of his ties to Marxism and to the Israeli government, which is forming at the time. Uh, he manages to clear his name. He's in the process of going to Mexico to do some work. Uh, he's in the process of negotiating a deal with the Israeli government to become an expat and move over there and work on their rocket program. He, he gets a rush order for some explosives for a Hollywood film. Big explosion downtown and downstairs in his makeshift laboratory. The, the tenants that he's renting rooms to upstairs run downstairs and see a half-blown-up Jack Parsons you know, struggling for life on the floor with you know half his body missing, arm gone, hole in his head. They take him to the hospital. He expires a few hours later, and from that point forward, you know, the myth of Jack Parsons is born. Marjorie Cameron, who was his wife at the time, believed that he had been assassinated by the government. So did some of his friends. People who knew him back in the old days admitted that he was a sloppy chemist and a heavy drinker and. If he was working with fulminate of mercury, you know, dropping that on the floor of his lab would have been like 10 million matches going off. Um, and he, he sort of became something that the world forgot until, I mean, when I got on the Internet in the late 90s, you know, that's how I discovered Jack Parsons. There was just a outlift serve about Aleister Crowley where people talked about him. But then out of the blue, you know, I mean, about 10 years ago, everybody started talking about him. Like, I don't know if you guys listen to the podcast uh, Tannis. 
a story that Parsons supposedly wrote that's apocryphal. He didn't really write it. It serves as the basis for that podcast. Uh, not, no spoilers, but if you've read all the, the Twin Peaks material, the two books that came out in conjunction with the series, the Babylon working in that has a lot to say about how the, the Twin Peaks universe was created. And Parsons has just become this part, this huge pop culture hero in the last few years there's two bios out about him. He's a hero of podcasts and conspiracy websites and, you know, all, all kinds of strange, weird corners of the web where, where people are you know, wanting to talk about this stuff. And now he's getting his own TV show. And finally, JPL has sort of resurrected his his uh, reputation as a legitimate scientist. He has a crater named after him on the moon. Um, you know, he's the government's kind of scrubbed his record and, and, you know, now shows off his inventions at the Smithsonian and that kind of stuff. So... That's sort of the the thirty seven plus years of Jack Parsons in what five minutes. That was amazing. You did a great job of covering it. Yeah. Yeah, I think the show's over now. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's an amazing story, and what a what an extraordinary life he lived. I just don't even know where to begin with this. You know, one of the things I think that we have to realize is that this this story actually began. I think why we really started talking about this during the grimoire episode is, you know, one of the grimoires that I brought up, I believe at that time, was one called the. Uh, the Book of the Sacred Magic of Abrabel and the Mage, which is supposedly of uh, Kabbalistic magic that goes back to the uh, uh, 13 to 1400s. And that is the book that Aleister Crowley Crowley uses at Boleskine House uh, to try to summon his moon child or his guardian angel. Um, and he spends that six months up there doing all these crazy rituals before that finally breaks down. And that's really the thing that, that Parsons bases his attempt to summon the Scarlet Woman or Babylon on. And, you know, Crowley writes a book about it called The Moonchild, which I personally think is a rewriting of Mockin's The Great God Pan, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this story actually predates Parsons. It begins with Aleister Crowley, and then I think it's still going. Like, Parsons has a life now that exists in pop culture that's sort of transcended the, the, the life of the real guy. Right. And so speaking of Crowley, uh, how do you think that Parsons, uh, Thelema, Thelema, I guess it depends how you want to pronounce it. I want to pronounce um, it. Crowley, Crowley, Thelema, Thelema. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Potato, potato. <laughs> um, so <laughs> how do you think that uh, his involvement in this uh, this group would be interpreted by typical 1950s America? Oh, wait, quickly, uh, magic, it's spelled the same but pronounced different. <laughs> ma- magic. Magic. Actually, you know, I, I, I hate to do this to you, but, you know, Alistair Crowley actually told us how to pronounce his name. He wrote a poem called The Convert, and it has a line that goes, where are you going so meek and holy? I'm going to the temple to worship Crowley. So he tells us how to pronounce his name. Um, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And if um, you get the but- uh, Sex and Rockets, the new edition, it's got an opening by uh, Robert Anton Wilson, and he keeps yeah. reminding you throughout the essay, it's pronounced Crowley, rhymes with holy. Yeah. Rhymes Might with- have been a half rhyme, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we know what people thought about Jack Parsons and Thelema at the time. Uh, one of his obituaries from the Pasadena Independent says, John W. Parsons, handsome 37-year-old rocket scientist, killed Tuesday in a chemical explosion was one of the founders of a weird semi-religious cult that flourished here about 10 years ago. Old police reports yesterday pictured the former Caltech professor, 
As a man who led a double existence, a down-to-earth explosives expert, how can you be a down-to-earth explosives expert, (laughs) who dabbled in intellectual necromancy? Possibly he was trying to reconcile fundamental human urges with the inhuman Buck Rogers type of innovations that sprang from his test tubes. And if that doesn't kick off your Call of Cthulhu investigation, your campaign (laughs) is broken. Your campaign is broken. (laughs) You know, uh, I'm working on my new uh, uh, HP Lovecraft streaming service. I'm calling it Call of Kahulu. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <Okay>. So, sorry. <laughs> all right. You can. All right. Never mind. Um, we know. I am. Sorry. <laughs> we, so, I mean, you know, you have to take. Let's go way on back because we're, we kind of talked about this last time. Mm. Like, are, are they competing with Nyarlatho uh, uh, flicks? I'll have to work on that. No, sorry. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, th- this just got real nerdy. I really apologize, Karen. Okay. Right. Just got. <laughs> just got, yeah. Um, like, we're all products of the satanic panic, right? And before that, our parents are products of the Red Scare. So, you know, we're talking about a time before Jonestown, before the satanic panic, before any of that stuff, when, when, when everybody was a Christian. You know, everybody went to church. So... The, the world of sort of magic, witchcraft, the occult, Christianity, fringe religion was 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 more real back then. Like, you know, you you had people who were doing things that we would consider cultish behavior. You know, um, who was that guy? Reverend Major Jealous Divine, the, the black pastor from Philadelphia who had this big alternative religious Christian movement. And, you know, these guys were on the radio and they were fairly mainstream. So, you know. By this time in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, Crowley has jumped the shark. He's he's not the great beast anymore. There's nothing that he can do that's shocking, and people are reading Oscar Wilde in school, and you know there's there's just not that stigma. He's an he's an antique by this time, and this is a world of science fiction and sort of intellectual play. So I really don't think people saw Thelema as anything other than just you know a a, a bit more California weirdness. It it was just it was no different than any you know, I don't want to say seven day Adventism, but you know, that's the tradition my family comes out of. And they were thought of as just kind of a little off center and a little weird at that time. Prior to the whole associating anything, not sort of main line American Protestantism or Catholicism with, with Satanism. I think Parsons was thought more of in his day as just being an eccentric. And again, he chalks up, um, his firing from JPL or his dismissal from JPL to, his association with Thelema, but the file actually says it was because he was a sloppy scientist. And I think it was probably easier for him to reconcile in his mind that he was a persecuted religious minority rather than a guy who just was so, so at his, his work, you know, one of his critics or one of his ex friends who became critics actually said, you know, Jack wanted to behave the way he always did in his backyard, you know, and in this laboratory situation, we had to be safer. And, he blew up a couple like their lab blew up a couple of times they actually got kicked off campus so i i don't know i i think that lima is probably considered a lot more weird and terrible today than it was back then when it was still new and still kind of being participated in by people who were fairly you know fairly normal and and mainstream wasn't he a marxist for a while too i read that somewhere (laughs) I mean, he flirted with everything. Like, he was a Marxist for a bit. That's what got him in trouble, you know, the first time with the government. He he was a seeker, what we would call a seeker now. 
you know, uh, I mean, I think I would say he was just a, you know, kind of a poor little rich kid who was looking for, he was very intelligent. I mean, that's dismissive, but he was a very intelligent guy. He had a lot of drive and a lot of genius, but he was really looking for an anchor, a worldview, and a, and a father. And he was continually, you know, sort of hooking up with beautiful women, stroke that ego, and then strong, interesting, powerful men, Crowley, the scientist there at Caltech, um, L. Ron Hubbard later, you know, people who could fill that gap of the missing sort of Marvel Parsons. And he has this dual personality. I mean, in his professional life, he's referred to as John Parsons. In his occult life, he's Jack Parsons, you know, and he's got this sort of two-fisted, two-handed way of being, you know, a lot of women thought he was effeminate, but the FBI file says that he's this macho man. So he's really very, you know, mercurial in the way he approaches life. He's always sort of looking for something. And I mean, this is a guy who's embraced a, a fringe science, what would be called a fringe science then. So for him, fringe ideas are not, are not out of bounds. And I think that's the thing that we really have to understand is that, you know, the idea of, of, of psychokinesis or the use of the will to actually manipulate the world, you know, prior, I mean, back in those days, we're in bounds. Like, like, we didn't know what the human will was capable of. Like, this was not something you could easily dismiss with skepticism. In the 60s, the government spent a lot of money looking into this stuff. You know, <clears throat> if the idea of space travel was in bounds, then a lot of what Parsons was looking at for people was in bounds, probably a lot more than than it is today. And my husband commented, he watched a couple of uh, YouTube videos with me on Jack Parsons and uh, he drew some parallels to Howard Stark. And yeah. uh, he was just wondering with him being a womanizer and just all of the other elements of his personality. Do you think that uh, that character was modeled after him in any way? I don't know if he was modeled after him, but boy, it, it's certainly tempting to say that. There were a couple, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there actually are a couple of characters that are based on Parsons that we know. I can't remember if that's one of them. And again, okay. he keeps showing up. But he, I mean, that's the question. Is is he defining the role of the mad scientist or is he playing that character or is that character based on him? That's one of the things that I kind mm -hmm. of always keep coming back to because it seems like that house had everybody in the world in it. Like, Man, anybody that seemed to blow through Hollywood between 1930 and 1950 seemed to figure out how to get up to Jack Parsons' place. And, I mean, you know, Kenneth Ager in, in his books points out how small Hollywood was in those days. So that's entirely possible. But he certainly seems to be in, to have been a person who had a tremendous influence on, on people for us to actually, you know, know so little about him as an, as an individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his house had sort of a different Hollywood Babylon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Again, that's spelling, right? Right. Yeah, it, that's that's actually not a bad not a bad double entendre. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Stay like, tuned. There'll be more. <laughs> well, I mean, there were a couple of people like uh, Paul Matheson who claimed to have a, a a gay relationship with Parsons that other people denied. Like, like, like. I guess that's really the thing. The guy didn't keep a diary. A few of his really private papers were passed to. Uh, his second wife, uh, Marjorie, who actually never went by Marjorie. She went purely by her, her given last name, Cameron. That's the, the, the name she went by. And uh, unfortunately, her jealous husband destroyed all of the Parsons' notes on the Babylon working, except for the stuff that was, that was published, the actual Lieber 49 that he wrote up and, and published. So, I mean, a lot of what we would know about Parsons 
it was kind of destroyed by his later poverty and then by the weird things that happened with his second wife's relationship. So we're, we're really left to look at what other people said about him, the FBI file, the, the records at JPL. And unfortunately, a lot of that stuff doesn't cover the, the occult aspects of his life. And now I think a lot of people are just kind of trying to ride his coattails and make claims about their relationship with him. Because, again, that house seemed to just – anybody who was interesting – sort of pass through that front door yeah we'll put some links in the show notes but there's some interviews with people who actually lived at the house uh on youtube yeah. which, which are pretty yes. interesting um so crowley uh he seemed like we we talked about him in uh, multiple episodes so if, if you're just tuning into this as your first episode in our magic series i'd encourage you to go back and listen to our uh, sort of uh series we've done going from early witchcraft trials all the way up through uh, Alistair Crowley and Western esotericism. Give this stuff some context. This is a really interesting guy, but I think if you take him outside of that context, it's a fantastic story, but it makes a lot more sense if you know where it's coming from. But let's. Right. my question is, so Crowley, who seemed like he was looking for money from the American OTO chapters, but, but what else was he looking for from Parsons and from Smith, the guy that was in charge of this lodge before him? What, what was Crowley trying to get out of spreading Thelema? Well, I mean, Crowley, I, and that's, man, that is a complicated question, you know, and I've worked in Crowley stuff. There's, you know, one of the things I like about Aleister Crowley is I get older, I'll always be able to cosplay him. I, I seem to see his, his face in the mirror more and more <laughs> whenever I get up in the morning. <laughs> so, you know, I have a soft spot for him. He's going to be my Halloween costume for the rest of my life. But um that is the big question of people who sit around and discuss this guy is to what extent was he a true believer versus to what extent was he a cynical manipulator? And I, I think he was some of each, you know, to be entirely honest. I mean, he spent between 1914 and 1919 in the United States. And that time when he's at Boleskine house, I think that's 1899 to 1913, that 14 years is really the longest time the man ever stays in one place. And a lot of his true believers sort of believe that the failed um, Abramelin operation is what infested the guy with demons, that if he had completed that operation and and talked to his higher power and, and met his guardian angel, that he would have been a, a better guy. But the failure to do that is what made him the great beast. And I think he might have stoked up that reputation later on. But he begins his career as a guy who's absolutely a true believer. And as he has the revelations that lead him to write the holy books of Thelema in the early 20th century, around 07 to 09, um, he's, he's intent on founding a new religion. And it's a new religion that, you know, he has rooted in history. You know, it, it goes back and, and relates to some earlier writings about free will it's it's a cleaned up, very British version of sort of Nietzsche's philosophies. Um, it's super libertarian in its outlook, you know, and it, it's very much about the dignity of the individual, individual freedom. And he's sort of proposing Thelema as, a, as an alternative, not just to Christianity, but as an alternative to other forms of esotericism, the Golden Dawn, Masonry, all these things he had dabbled in. Um, and he's really trying to supplant that with his own belief system. So in the beginning, you know, Crowley is very, he founds the Abbey of Thelema in Italy, which just turns into this hellish nightmare of gross sickness and debauchery for real. Um, and he doesn't come out of that unscathed as he gets older. 
he seems to be trying and poorer and broker and sicker. He seems to be relying more on more on acolytes to, to pay his bills than he is actually trying to be a, a, a priest of this new religion. And I think by the time he runs into Parsons, he's about 50, 50. He's really trying to found the Lima in the United States as a, you know, of course the United States is where something like this would take off. I mean, look, L. Ron Hubbard, man, he got the message. He figured this out too sweet and, and made it work in a way that Crowley certainly never did. But that was because I think L. Ron Hubbard was completely cynical. He, he wasn't sincere at all. He, he was in it for the bucks. Um, when Parsons uncovers Crowley looking for this father figure, I think from looking at their letters and their communications as we can see them, there was a genuine affection between those two guys. He actually liked Jack Parsons, even though they were communicating by mail and by Smith and these other guys who were there. He had very strong opinions on Parsons, you know, on, on Betty Northrup, the sister of Parsons' wife. He called her a, a vampire and a, a, a hellcat and all this stuff and thought that she would be Parsons. And Crowley actually predicts that Betty Northrup would be uh, Parsons' downfall, and she turns out to be. Um, so, I mean, you know, this is a guy who has a genuine affection for him. Um, Parsons is very gullible in terms of his money, and he, you know, Crowley never taps him any harder than he needs to. So I think he's legitimately trying to get a foothold in Hollywood. I mean, Crowley's a movie fan. He goes to see movies. He's knows, he knows what's going on out there. But he's also trying to lay the groundwork for, you know, what's become a very painful retirement for himself. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Let me let me throw in a quick follow up or just a comment. The this this sort of if you want to go a little bit Freudian, which Parsons himself does, even though I think you know Freud's theories are discredited, discredited or not, people lived by them and thought they were interpreting yeah, their lives through them. So, so mm-hmm. Wilfred Smith was the guy running the chapter when Parsons right. gets involved, and and he ends up taking Jack's wife away. But yet Parsons still sees Wilfred as like a father figure and interacts right. with him and works with him for pretty much the rest of his life. And, and Correct. That's like George Harrison and, and uh, Eric Clapton, I guess. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. With I'm, Patty Harrison. Wow. 
you don't know about that. I don't know about that. I'm not much of a rock guy. Oh, well, but, yeah, so. George, George Harrison's first wife, uh, Patty Boyd, left him for a captain, and yet they stayed friends for the rest of their lives. Well, that's for the rest of kind of Harrison's awesome. Life. Cool. Yeah. I, mean, good, I mean, it's cool that they're able to do it, but like Parsons, like, it just seems like again and again he gets sort of, if you don't mind me saying, dicked over by people, takes, <laughs> takes, takes it on himself. Like, what did I do wrong? And then tries, right. to, like, just says, okay, this is yet another challenge I have to go through to get to my ultimate goal of this moon child thing, you know? Right. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. Now, he has, he wrote, you know, he actually told Helen, his wife, because these are sisters, let's be clear, you know. Helen, the older Northrop sister, is Jack Parsons' wife. The younger Northrop sister, Sarah Elizabeth Bruce Northrop, who Jack called Betty, Betty short for Elizabeth, Beth, Betty, um, is the girl that he ends up falling in with, but they don't get married. They have a, a relationship, a sexual relationship, while Jack is married, and then Smith actually takes Parsons' real wife away from him. But Parsons actually tells... Helen, his wife, that he thinks the, the kid's sister is more sexually compatible with him. And then Betty sort of develops this resentment to Parsons, but ends up staying with him. So they, you know, I mean, you can only, I mean, that's too much drama, man. All the people in that house all jumping in and out of each other's beds. And then this weird L. Ron Hubbard guy shows up and takes Betty away. And Parsons fights back here, but, but is, but, but, but Betty's eventually able to talk him out of pursuing his legal case. Like, like she convinced, I mean, they straight up rip off Jack Parsons. They take his life savings, buy some boats with the, under the pretext that they're going to sell them. They don't sell them. They bug out to Florida. Parsons gets on a plane, tracks them to Florida, literally does a magic ritual to summon them back to shore, which a big storm blows up and Parsons has convinced himself he was successful. And they, they do a deal in court where he essentially drops the claim for $2,500. So you're absolutely right. I mean, getting dicked over is what this guy did. And he, that happened to him with JPL. I mean, he, he, he was never able to really, I mean, he could build rockets. He could, he could sort of live this life, but in terms of the business aspects of his career, I mean, he was just no good at that stuff. And but, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah his, his, his had, he was forced to sell his stock when they kicked him out of the group. The, the, Correct. And, and that stock would have been worth, millions and he got about 20,000 bucks so well not only that he sells his house and what do they build there the first bush gardens <laughs> so yeah they don't even, even make money off his real estate so wow you know so here he is at the end of his life working for the company he was working for when he first got started and making up pyrotechnics and in what was literally his converted laundry room like but, I mean, that's the path of genius. The same thing happened to Tesla. I mean, Tesla ends up having this really bright career where he's got a, a million patents all at once, doesn't monetize any of them, and then ends up living off this kind of tiny retirement in a hotel room feeding pigeons. Like, there's a difference between sort of Parsons and Edison and Tesla and Edison. Like, some geniuses can monetize their stuff, and some guys just don't, don't have, the, don't have the, the ability to do it. Oh, I mean, we've mentioned, no, uh, I give all my stuff to the government for free and my wife thinks I'm stupid. So I might be in that camp too. So. <laughs> but uh, getting back to L. Ron Hubbard, we've yeah. touched upon him a couple of times. So can we go into a little bit more detail about how he became involved with Jack? 
Yeah, first off, I just want to say I love Scientology. Uh, don't sue me. I, uh, anything I say from this point on is 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 purely for entertainment purposes. <laughs> sure, we, we love Scientology too. We love it. It's it's a valid religion. Everybody just chill out. So, um, I we probably shouldn't even be doing this episode. We should be watching the upcoming uh, Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We're all we're all friends here. Yeah, no, I didn't write a, a chapter about them in one of my books. No. No. Oh, yeah. So um, we are all clear, right? We're all clear. Yeah. We're all clear. Yeah, we're clear. <laughs> we're all barefaced and clear. Um, L. Ron Hubbard shows up at the house. He's sort of introduced to Parsons through that occult community. Their connections are a little bit unclear. He shows up at the house renting a room, referring to himself as Captain Hubbard. I don't think he was a captain. I think I think he was a, a lieutenant or something like that. If, you know, fairly mid-ranging officer who did have command of a ship off the coast of the the United States, and he sort of got this idea in his head that the the Japanese and the Nazis had taken over some island off the coast of, of the U.S. and bombed it. And they, he was diagnosed with what they used to call war nerves and sort of cashiered out of the service. And you know, he's obsessed with boats, and he's a kind of minor science science fiction writer. And he shows up at the parsonage, and whatever the connection was between these two guys, they hit it off immediately. I mean, this must have been, you know, a man crush of historic proportions. Proportions like these guys really seem to legitimately love each other right off the bat. They're spending all their time together. They, you know, Parsons has this idea to do the Babylon working, Libra forty nine. He's gone out into the desert and sort of been delivered this this vision of how to manifest. Uh, Thelema through Babylon, and he gets uh, Hubbard on board, and they spend you know just hours at night. And you can go online and read this if you. I think if you go to Jack Parsons's YouTube page, there's link to the or not YouTube Wikipedia page. There's links to various published versions of the Babylon working. It is just silly as hell. But if they were up there reading this thing at night, a couple of you know for the children in the audience, you know. Parsons was pleasuring himself at different points during this thing and engaging in sex magic while, you know, Hubbard was playing the role of number two and taking these notes. And it builds up to this culmination out in the desert um, in which Parsons, you know, goes out there and performs the last phase of the the ritual. Um, You know, they go out in the desert and perform this, this ritual can't find the date, but I think it was ah, 1946, January to March 1946. You know, they go out in the desert and perform this ritual, and, you know, whatever they see out there convinces Parsons that he's been successful. And then when they come back to the Parsonage, the way they tell the story, the way Parsons recorded it, is that Marjorie Cameron was there, and, and they saw in her the manifestation of, of Babylon. Um, and she was a, a look-up Marjorie Cameron from 1946. She was a very striking, you know, a, a woman. I, I mean, that... I, I probably would have been impressed too. Um, and from that point on, their relationship seems to break down. Like, like the new shiny in Parsons life is Marjorie Cameron and Hubbard becomes sort of interested in, in Parsons, you know, what are we going to call her mistress, girlfriend, the sister of his wife. And they begin to build a relationship. And Betty, the way people described her, she was an incredibly div- divisive person. You know, Parsons made her sort of second in command of the, 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 the Agape Lodge, but she had no interest in it. She loved to party. She would go out to bars and call on the phone to interrupt Parsons' rituals and performances. And she was always just trying to be the center of attention, the center of the show. 
And her and Hubbard convinced Parsons, this is all pre-Dianetics, that they've got a business deal they're going to do. And he, he gives them you know, virtually the entire proceeds from the sale of his house to go out to Florida and buy some boats, three boats. And they're going to sail those boats back to the West Coast and, and make money by selling them out in California. Because I guess Florida boats were better than California boats. And, you know, that was quite a trip to do that. But all along, um, Hubbard was planning an around-the-world cruise on, uh, on Parsons' money. So as we already talked about that, they have this feud. Um, L. Ron Hubbard sail, sails off into the future, um, eventually divorces Betty, because he's actually in an incest. He's, he's actually in a relationship with another woman. He's married at the time he falls in with, with Betty Northrup and marries her. He cleans up his act, writes Dianetics, and the rest is history. And then he later claims he polishes over this time in history by claiming to have been a secret agent who was, you know, embedded in with, you know, Parsons and the Agape Lodge and, and you know, rolled heads and busted them up, you know, detective style. You know, what he was doing was, you know, for the good of the country to get rid of these commie, you know, Satanists uh, who, had, who had weaseled their way into the, you know, into the defense industry. And... From that point on, you know, I mean, that's what's kind of funny about Crowley. Say what you want to about the guy. He certainly knew human nature. That was that was his number one tool of his trade. He had all that pen perfectly. I mean, Betty Northrup and L. Ron Hubbard were Parsons undoing. From that point on, you know, his relationships fall apart. He gets drunk all the time. You know, he loses his fortune. He kind of loses his mind a little bit. And then, you know, he eventually loses his career. He doesn't have a place. Rocketry is no longer cowboy science. By the 1950s, uh, we were planning, you know, the. I believe we were getting close to putting Blue Gemini on the, on the, on the charts to start doing some of the early big rockets. We've done Operation Paperclap and stolen all the, all the German scientists and away from them, and the Cold War is going great guns. So there's just no home for Jack Parsons, the occultist, inside the world of of, of rocketry at that time. I, I don't want to lose sight of of uh, Parsons rocket contributions I was going to talk about that yeah, but I sure. think I'll put that in the pre-info stuff cuz that's uh I, that's easily summarized but it's some good stuff um that's the thing he I mean I mean I know we're we're talking about him here from the occult angle and and you know that's what people know Parsons for now and in a way that's unfortunate but he he was not a minor deity like he was a big deal and the stuff he did was 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 really important. I'm trying to think of an analog in today. I mean, I guess this would be, I mean, he wasn't Elon Musk big, but this would be like, you know, I don't know, the guy who wrote the original DOS program that, that Gates bought being an occultist or, or something like that. Like, like this is a guy who made a genuine contribution to science. Yeah. 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 So that's, a, yeah. It, the computer industry might have some nice parallels. I'm not sure quite who to grab onto there, but, uh, yeah, he made some interesting breakthroughs, important ones. But I guess the point was, but you're, you mentioning paperclips, a big thing, because when, yeah. when they, the, the Germans were way ahead of, of the allies in rocketry. And so when they got the Germans, they got the German scientists, they got the German research, uh, and they, you know, basically forgave them for being terrible Nazis and said, hey, you know, <laughs> it's okay uh, if you'll just tell us about your rocket science. And so, you know, between, right. and, and it went from, 
uh, amazing artillery use uh, to uh, satellites and moonshots and all that sure. stuff pretty quickly. Um, pretty quick. Yeah. So, um, so that that that's another story altogether. The the whole thing about Operation Paperclip and. You know, it, it certainly is faster if someone else has already done the work. But but Parsons was making huge breakthroughs uh, in you know chemistry, uh, but he was doing it in a really cowboy way. You know, that's one of, that's one of the things I do want to I do want to address a little bit. That I I mean, we're all skeptics here, though. I'm I might we might not be good skeptics by some people's standards. One of the weird, oh man, I'm gonna say I'm, I'm gonna say it. One of the good things about the Germans is they were. German culture was a little weird and a little mystical. I mean, aside from the whole Hitler thing, I mean, not to you know make a joke out of that. I mean, they were not as dogmatically skeptical as the American population was as we are. I mean, they had that whole like they thought Vril was real. They had a very weird view of the world that we, you know, at the time would have thought was silly and today think is preposterous. But because of that. They had a culture of being willing to throw tons of money at these things they called Wunderwaffen, which were these, you know, exotic ideas for weapons. I mean, Hitler was investing money in a, in a nuclear bomb. Uh, he didn't put his money that way because he considered it Jewish science. So his prejudice got in his way there. Um, but he he took very seriously the concept of rockets in a way that Americans did not. And you're right. As a result of that, he got way the hell the hell ahead of us. Right at a time when, when it was crucial that we actually be developing those kind of technologies. Yeah, we, we were pretty short sighted uh, in the whole thing about people not even wanting to believe rockets were possible. I mean, it, you know, there's a cool story about uh, Parsons and his coworkers, or who were, they were just friends at the time, not coworkers, but uh, calling up Goddard, uh, who was considered to be, I guess, the father of American rocketry. Sure. Uh, and uh, making phone calls and exchanging information until Parsons and his friends realize Goddard's actually pumping them for info. They've, got, they've gotten ahead. <laughs> pumping them for info. Yeah. And, well, Goddard made the mistake of being so um, mindful of, of his invention that he pulled away from the scientific community and worked in a vacuum. You can't do so it. So he wasn't yeah. Yeah, appraising himself for his developments by, by sort of pulling away and working in isolation JPL actually just got way ahead of the guy. The, the Nazis, I mean, they were exploring a lot of supernatural phenomena and, and claims, and um, <laughs> they were trying to train dogs to talk and, and do all kinds of interesting things. So, it, yeah. It, I, it got really weird. And again, you know, one of the founding, the Vril Society, you guys ought to do a show on that sometime, really seriously, proposed this idea based on a fictional novel, and people just took it. They just started believing it. Like, it just became a part of the, the Volkenreich, you know, mythology. I mean, it, 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 it went the other way. Like, it, it just got bizarre. And you're right. They were you know, looking into talking dogs. and Oh, weren't they? Uh, they were looking for the Holy Grail as well, I think. That Holy, was I, yeah, I saw a documentary about that. It was very yeah, exciting. I saw that, too. I, it, yeah. it was, I remember it. Yeah, it was a good one. Uh, um, no, no, there was. They were looking for a lot of artifacts and uh, sending researchers to try to find the true history of the Aryan race and all that, kinds of things. The, the organization was called the Ananerva, and one of the things that they they did they they thought they the world. I mean, talk about flat Earth. They thought that the world was hollow and we were living on the inside. So they actually sent missions out to try to see across the the inside of the Earth as a way to weaponize 
living inside the hollow earth. So again, I don't I don't want to talk up the fact that the, the Nazis had this superior worldview, but their their sort of willingness to entertain craziness, you know, led them to make some very very serious developments at a time when Jack Parsons and his team were out literally like working day jobs to fund university research. Like that to me just seems crazy that you would go to your job during the day take your wages and then go to Caltech and use your wages to, to fund the university's research that you're doing for them. I know that you would know. be like, like, Sounds like my career working a day job and then spending all your money doing a podcast. It's crazy. No, no. <laughs> yeah. I know. Being, being I know. an independent researcher. Yeah. Yeah. Like. No, but, but in all seriousness, <laughs> the, the, uh, mentioning of real, we, we've actually talked about that yeah. briefly. If you go back to our history of magic, um, this is uh, from a. Yes. Uh, there's a book called uh, "The Coming Race" by Edward Bulwer Lytton and uh, Madame Blavatsky. <laughs> a dark, the dark and stormy night guy. That's right. It was a dark and stormy night. That's exactly right. And so he writes this fictional book about Vril and about this, uh, I guess, inner Earth uh, group and their magic. And it comes up again and again and again. It's uh, yes. it's involved in uh, Theosophy, the the reboot with Blavatsky. It's involved in yes. uh, lots of other stuff. It seems awfully reminiscent of the shaver mysteries that it's just it's just never going to die so you know and i the, i think parsons was tapping in to bring it back to that into this other kind of like thelema is the human manifestation of the will and one of the things that happens that i find really interesting you know seven degrees of separation this is my connection to jack parsons is you know marjorie cameron goes on to have a relationship with kenneth anger the filmmaker the guy who's sort of the modern prophet of of uh, of chaos magic who I actually met in Dallas in the nineties at the Thelemite temple there. <laughs> so, wow. You know, I mean, it was pretty cool. Um, you know, he was doing a book signing, I think for Hollywood Babylon two or one of those. And he did it at the, the temple of Thelema, which is quite, I don't know what it's like now, but in the nineties, it was kind of a neat place there in Dallas. It wasn't very far from the, the Scottish Rite Mason's lodge, which is also a neat place in Dallas. There was this, this idea that the, you know, to borrow the Nietzschean phrase, that the will to power can be made manifest through magic, that you don't need the secret ritual, you just need a ritual. You don't need the, you know, the the, the magic words, you know, whatever, klatu, barata, niktu, or whatever, to be exactly right. So long as you're using these things as a focus for your will, um, it's it's not really important how you do it. It's just that you make sure you do it. And Parsons, I think, he never called what he did chaos magic. That phrase comes later. But that's what he was doing, his will to focus his his energy into these magical processes. And I think that's where he would explain it away as a kind of scientific method. You know, this is this is something that, you know, he could hang his hat on as something that might make the human will manifest in, in physical reality. Uh, and of course, believed in this hierarchy of, of of these beings out there. But just a quick mm-hmm. comment: I mean, it's not like this idea is dead. Not only there's still no. people. I mean, the, the Dean Radin, who some of our listeners will recognize from uh, his parapsychology work, and uh, uh, he's he's been around for a while. We've talked about him briefly a few times, but he just, he has a new book out right now, which is all about magic is real. That all this idea about the will and using the will to influence reality, it really works. Um, I'm highly skeptical of that. I think we've probably made that clear by now. But uh, it, even if this idea is not true, this idea is not dead. I mean, not only is it not dead, you know, I was I was up in Brooklyn doing a reading of a, of a book uh, that I collaborated on a couple of weeks ago. 
one of my friends who is a fellow author is a Wiccan, and, and she's done a book called, I'll plug a book, uh, Light Magic for Dark Times. And it's, I mean, that's her whole shtick is that, you know, I've written this book of magic spells that, I mean, I think I think you and I might call it curandismo. It's sort of a way to, or, or channeled meditation, like, you know, I mean, she calls it magic. But to me, it feels a lot like a, a, a way to engage in mindfulness, relaxation, uh, curandaria, you know, uh, uh, the kind of stuff that you would get uh, through meditation. And, and it's the process, the ritual, the assembling, the artifacts all have a sort of calming effect on the psyche. And if you're trying to use magic as, a, as an antidote for anxiety, I mean, that doesn't hurt my feelings too much. I mean. I don't know how that's any different from me paying my shrink, you know, 500 bucks to, to take me through guided meditation to, to unwind. Well, I mean, I, how many people – we seem to have a tendency as humans to develop rituals, whether we imbue them with magical significance or not. The, I mean, Correct. the things mm-hmm. you do that succeed, those are the things you tend to repeat. You know, Correct. and unfortunately, the things you do that fail but feel good also <laughs> you tend to also repeat. You repeat. <laughs> I was say that. Yeah. But I, I was actually curious. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the uh, Sex and Rockets book, it seems like Jack was just making his rituals up. Like his actual Crowley esque uh, research seemed to be pretty limited from when I was reading, and that he he was just sort of defining his own rituals. And that seems like what you're talk- talking about. So, Blake, are are you asserting that people don't make up sacred texts? No, 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 no. <laughs> I just wanted to know if there's any definitive I mean, re- reason to somewhere. believe Jack. Could, no, I, I imagine everything has source material. <laughs> no, he was, and he admitted he was just making them up, and that was the crooks of his thing. He he really did, and Crowley was the same way. I mean, Lieber 49, which is Parsons' Babylon working, that's his most famous work and his contribution to sort of magical literature en masse. He says he was channeled to him in the desert. Well, I mean, you know, all of his writings, that they were all channeled by these ancient masters. That's what Blavatsky said. It's always channeled. I mean, hell, man, the Bible was channeled, right? Like, that's the method by which rituals come into being on, on the part of most people. And that's what, you know, I mean, what is, that's how Hubbard got Dianetics, right? He went into a trance and reconnected with his ancient, reincarnated self or whatever and channeled Dianetics. But yeah, Parsons was just making this stuff up. He wasn't going, he wasn't doing what, what we want him to do. Like you and I want him to go to the monastery in Poland and find the book, you know, from 1430 and, and bring it down and do the ancient ritual and have all this stuff happen. That's what Aleister Crowley did with his moon child ritual. He actually had the book of Abramelin, which is this sort of obscure text. And, and he was trying to, you know, base his his ritual practice on this ancient text. But Parsons, being a scientist, I mean, the guy invented his rockets out of out of thin air. He invented his rituals out of thin air too, and and saw them as a vehicle for for channeling his will. And it's clear if you read Lieber forty nine, it reads like Jack Parsons' um, scientific text. It is it is dry and it like and it needs to be written in Latin because it's not, even by the standards of of magic ritual. And it's clearly Jack Parsons talking, but it is incredibly complex. There's some aspects of it which are compelling. And, I mean, it is this this sort of repetitious attempt to contact this this deity. He's got a, you know, he's got a book. He's got a dagger. He's got some magic stones. You know, all the, all the usual, um, you know, stuff that you would have to do that kind of ritual. 
So regarding Jack Parsons' death, um, yeah, you, you mentioned about- you mentioned earlier that uh, Cameron was of the opinion that it had been an assassination. I'd heard that maybe there were uh, stories that it was suicide or that something else was going on. What do you make of those claims? Do you think it was just bad science that led Man, to his this death? Is, this is the one I'm the most interested in, you know, and where I kind of, you know, talk out of school a little bit. Everybody thinks the U.S government does assassination but man then as now like this town can't keep a secret you know <laughs> I, I mean it just can't and if, two, if two government employees know something then 200 government employees know something so i i don't believe jack parsons was assassinated because i i don't think targeted assassination then as now was a was a would have been a dangerous practice you know, for anyone to engage in. There were better ways and there are better ways to undermine someone than to just straight up outright kill them. I mean, how's that working out for for Putin? Every time he kills somebody, he gets weaker, not stronger, and his opposition grows, not his strength. So I don't think he was assassinated by the U.S. government. That being said, the Israeli government certainly assassinates people, and they don't hide the fact. So the door's not closed on that possibility but he was trying to get a a job with israel and israel was very interested in hiring him so i think that puts them out of the frame the other possibility for assassination is that he had helped bust some cops for murder um in that pipe bomb case they had blown up a car some people have argued that the explosion came from underneath parson's house and uh and that he was assassinated by by those crooked cops or by friends of, of the, the LAPD who who wanted revenge on Parsons. And then thirdly, there's the idea of, of suicide. Hell of a way to go. I mean, if Parsons were going to blow himself up, knowing his flair for drama, I'm not sure he would have just taken a can of fulminate a mercury and thrown it on the floor. I mean, that seems... For one thing, it didn't kill him right off. It, it must have been incredibly painful and gory. I, I think he would you know, knowing Parsons would walk out in the desert with one of his bombs and just, you know, go up in a puff, painless, bright flash of light. Uh, and then there's the possibility that it was an accident. And, you know, I, I hate to be the, the downer in the conspiracy theory, but he had contributed to some fairly major and dangerous explosions at Caltech while he was there. And sometimes their lab would blow up in the middle of the day when nobody was even around. So, you know, people who say he was safe with his 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 uh, his pyrotechnics, I don't trust that. I mean, because he's mixing up this fulminate of mercury in a coffee can in a converted laundry room. Now, and, and, I, and to be fair, no longer a bastion of sobriety. Yes, he's <laughs> drinking a lot. And, you know, my dad was a, was a tinkering inventor and he damn near blew our house up one time. Uh, he kept this stuff around that he called floor sweep which was a whole bunch of petrochemical poured into a gigantic 50-gallon drum of, uh, what do you call it, uh, wood shavings from the floor. And he would use that to sort of clean up uh, spilled uh, <laughs> alkaloids around our garage slash laboratory. And one day he knocked his blowtorch into that thing and, you know, damn near blew us all <laughs> Wow. <laughs> So, you know, and I mean, my dad's a smart, clever guy who had an OSHA certification and all that stuff. So, like, you know, accidents happen. And I just, man, I still feel like Parsons just got careless. I mean, you do that mm. kind of work enough. 
you get confident, you get overconfident. And let's look at the fact that, you know, he's heading, he's trying to get out the door to go to Mexico about a job. He's strapped for cash. He gets a rush order for this collection of pyrotechnics that he needs to do. And he's trying to slap them together in a hurry, literally while Cameron's at the grocery store. So to me, that, that doesn't smell like, uh, uh, murder. That smells like an accident. Like, mm-hmm. Plus, you know, how do you how do you pull that murder off? Like, what does that look like when the, the G-man walks in the door? What does he do? Grab the can of explosives and throw it on the ground with the, the tenants, you know, six feet away in the upstairs room and then somehow run out before anybody? It doesn't make any sense. Like, there's no there's no K-Bono there in terms of, of trying to pin this on somebody. But, sure. you know, again, I encourage people to read those great, the, 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 the source. But if you're a Twin Peaks rant fan, definitely read the books. Because the whole uh, Jack Parsons murder plays a huge role in the in the Twin Peaks mythology. Same with uh, Tannis, the podcast. Like they really play up the Jack was assassinated thing as a part of their their collective uh, mythology. Right, it certainly adds to his legend. It sure does. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I mean, he we, didn't we, know we, anything we, at that time. The government didn't have a reason to kill him because he didn't know anything. Like he was out of the game at that point. Yeah, he felt clear to leave. Right. So yeah. yeah. Um, so we've talked about Jack and I think in pretty great detail, which I really appreciate. Sure. Um, but I don't want to leave without saying something about Cameron. So she lives on what, what, what's her legacy? What happens with her? Oh man, I'm glad you want to bring that up. It's, it's, it's a shame. Cause I just, I'm crazy about her art. Like anybody go online and Google Marjorie Cameron. Oh, yeah. You won't have to, or you can just go to our show notes at mustchalk.org. I'll okay. put a link to it. It is right. amazing art. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, she is just incredible. She did this amazing um, sort of self-portrait of herself. I think it's called Cameron with the Black Egg. And it's it's her with her striking red hair in the... She's actually, you know, wearing the thelemite garb of, of the Agape Lodge. And she's holding this black egg, which represents, you know, the birth of Babylon and the moon child that they're trying to give birth to. Her stuff is just like... It is just like the greatest, trippiest, coolest... You know, like I, I want a piece of this stuff. Like there's four or five pieces of art I'm trying to get. And I, I absolutely want some of her stuff. She has an interesting life. Like she sort of breezes through Jack Parsons life. He's killed. You know, she ultimately ends up living in New Mexico in the, in the Pueblos out there. She falls in with a sculptor after having, you know, a, a really bad time immediately following Parsons death. Um, she has a fling with Ken Anger, uh, and she sort of ends up out there sort of practicing her art. She's She falls into kind of an Anais Nin sort of pop culture role, showing up in, in famous people's movies and sort of sitting on the couch in weird videos and just and just sort of being around that art scene. You know, like I, I have friends like that in Brooklyn who are just, you know, they're, no, they're nobody of note, but they're always at the hot party, you know. And that's sort of the role that she falls into of sort of being this this pop culture person but she has terrible health problems she was a chain smoker like nobody's business and by midlife she's already got emphysema she's got a lung collapse um she doesn't quit smoking i mean she sticks with it um and she lives up until i think about 19 yeah 1995 um and she continues to just sort of hang out with these other occultists and sort of has a way to monetize the little bit of of, of work that she does and the little bit of sort of pop culture um, heroism that she does. Um, 
somebody referred to her as the typhoid Mary of the occult world. Like (laughs) (laughs) that's sort of, she sort of comes and goes into this universe. Um, she had a few art showings. There was a, f- a famous one, 1964. That was probably the height of her career. Uh, I think it was called the um, it was called the Transcendental Art of, of Cameron, and that was probably the one time that her artwork was on display. Uh, and it shows up from time to time. I was, I think, I was in Taos one time and just walked in and I was like, "That's a Marjorie Cameron piece, and I can't afford it right now." You know. So yeah, I mean it's a shame. Like it, it would be cool. Like, like for all the MFA students listening to you tonight, <laughs> this would be a cool project, you know, go out and do a catalog of Marjorie Cameron's work and, and stick into her and give her the, the biography. I, I think it, it, you know, her, uh, her reputation sort of began to grow after her, uh, after her death. I think the Whitney museum has done a couple of, of exhibitions of her stuff. And then of course, sex and rockets, features Cameron fairly heavily. It's sad because I don't really think she shows up that much in Strange Angel. Like like she's she's more of a background character. And I think she's starting to sort of enjoy this uh this uh this sort of revival of her own reputation. I mean it would be cool to pick that up and, and run with it as a project. Well whatever they do with the T V show, I hope they figure her prominently because she's really interesting. I don't even know that she's in it. I, I was looking at the cast list. I, I don't see anybody cast as Marjorie Cameron. <laughs> So clearing uh, the mission. <laughs> yeah, so I'm kind of curious as to how they're going to do that. So you know, you'll have to do it. I'm ready for the Blake Karen review of Strange Angel when it when it comes out. I, I, but man, I mean, I'm ready to watch it. I just, I, you know, I have really mixed feelings about it being dramatized. So. Yeah, this is fun though because you know, you 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 might be like me. Like the first time I heard about Jack Parsons, it was like this cool secret that nobody knew. Like it was true. Like oh, I know about this cool guy that nobody's heard of. And, you know, you'd go to the, you know, some corner of the web in, in 1999. And there would be this little discussion about this famous rocket scientist that was into magic. And then all of a sudden, like he, he has really enjoyed a, a revival. Like it has just come out. I don't even know what's driving it, but it has just come out of nowhere. Yeah. I, I don't either, but it's, it's, it's certainly, I think deserved. He's a, absolutely, mm-hmm. as I said, these, the nexus, of of science and magic in American culture, so yeah, really interesting. Yeah. So fascinating. Well, I mean, maybe it's the whole cult of Tesla. Maybe he's like the junior Tesla or Tesla for for Lovecraft fans. Maybe he. Well, that's a pretty good analogy. Yeah, he's kind of like the inverse. Yeah, the other side of it, right? So, uh, yeah. if, if Tesla's the the science as magician, he's the magician as science, right? Right. So, I mean, I'm I, I will proudly out myself as being on on Team Edison. I'm I'm science's get me paid <laughs> <laughs> I, I ain't lying <laughs> yeah, that, that'll have to go for my book when, when, whenever i finish that project that'll that'll be that's very yeah, edison's a great example of how to how to monetize incremental improvements on somebody else's back right, right? So, yeah. mm-hmm. this this is dedicated to my mortgage and my attempt to incrementally monetize this podcast yes <laughs> this does seem like a great place to put a plug in for patreon but uh, <laughs> i'll have one at the we'll lead for a moment absolutely no but th- seriously jerry uh, this was fantastic uh, thank you for thank helping you. us uh, do better than I think I could have done trying to. Co- I can't be the expert on this. I, I'm so fascinated by it, though. 
Um, oh, incredible story. Yeah. I just so involved. Before this interview, I went to a used bookstore and was while I was there for my son, I was taking him there and I stopped and asked one of the book people if they had a used copy of Strange Angel. And I was trying to explain to them, they were like, they didn't know who Jack Parsons was. I gave them like a two minute review and they're like, oh my God, how could I have never heard of this person? I'm like, well, you're right. about That's to. That's how yeah. I felt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, for any people who were like complaining because I'm doing these magic episodes, okay, I'm almost done. Uh, oh, but if, if you really. didn't enjoy this one, I don't know why you're listening to the show. <laughs> well, this this story involves a lot of monsters, I think. It does. I, you can't have the kind of monsters we have in, in Western culture without this Western esotericism influence. It's just all mixed together. Sure. It's all part of it. And one thing I do, I do want to say, you know, after the, the two issues, the two episodes on Grimoire, I got, I just want to thank everybody. I got so much positive feedback on that. You know, I had people, you know, sending me information about their cases and I, I had probably a dozen emails, people asking for me to actually write the, the, the book, the most valuable uh, uh, book in the world. I've done a treatment. I've actually been working on that. So I might, you know, doing, doing that one podcast might actually get me off my butt to, to write something instead of just talking about writing something. So that was, that was the feedback was great. And I certainly appreciate it. That's awesome. That. One piece of advice yeah. is don't tell anybody what you're working on. Just do the work. Yeah. Right. Cause That's you, what get, I'm doing. you get that, I'm you get that fake feeling like you've accomplished something when you tell somebody something. Oh, man. Don't let me, <laughs> don't let my wife listen to this. She's like, damn it. You... <laughs> <laughs> Who edit this bit out? <laughs> All right. This was this is fantastic. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you again, Jerry. We really appreciate thank your you time. Thank you so much, Jerry. Good to have you on here again. When you're in town, drink a beer with me. You know I will. All right. See ya. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with Jerry Drake talking about the amazing life of Jack Parsons, rocket scientist and occultist. A link to the books we discussed will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue, bigger stars, bigger ideas, bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018. SciCon is already one of the planet's premier skeptical conferences where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of illusions, 
to hear from the leading lights of science and skepticism. For 2018, we want PsyCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Stephen Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now. The triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer, psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the Psybabe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit, and many, many more, along with comic musician George Rubb, serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banachek, author book signings, and of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true, conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine, and the deniers of evolution, climate change, and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With PsyCon 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit csiconference.org. That's psiconference.org. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.